Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. So today we're going to be talking about the hottest show on Broadway, Springsteen on Broadway, which just opened and will run until February at the Walter Kerr Theater, which is a very tiny venue, perhaps slightly smaller than, you know, MetLife Stadium. Yeah. It holds about 970 people, and I have with me uh, Andy Green from Rolling Stone. Hello, Andy. Hi, hi there, Brian. And we were lucky enough to see Springsteen on Broadway uh, a couple days ago in the previews, and uh, it is a very intimate experience. It has gotten almost universally positive reviews. Uh, they came out last night, and uh, it's pretty much a rave which is really interesting. I was wondering, and I think we were talking about whether the fact that it's a hard-to-categorize show, it's on Broadway, but it's not a Broadway show. It's certainly not a musical. It's certainly not like a one-man show and like he's you know doing characters and voices and tap dancing, which is or whatever you think of a one-man show. Uh, it's not a concert either. <laughs> so as Andy wrote in his review, it's kind of like a live version of Springsteen's book, Born to Run. And the book, for those who read it and for those who didn't, I mean, it, it's this very vivid look at sort of the real Bruce Springsteen, the Bruce Springsteen the person as opposed to Bruce Springsteen the persona. You really get a sense of the guy behind the kind of halo, which he kind of rips off when I interviewed him about the book. He, he said he deliberately included details, including like <laughs> a mild venereal disease he once caught. Uh, he got crabs and gave it to his dad. He, you know, <laughs> that, I mean, he put that stuff in the book for a reason, which was like, I am a human being. I am not this like just this American icon. I am an American icon, but there's like a real complicated, flawed human being beneath this, including a human being with like a really complex psyche and some really complex stuff going on in his background, which if anything is underplayed, I would say, in the Broadway show. I mean, for example, in the book, what you find out about his father, Douglas, is that contrary to just being sort of a hard hat, hard ass, like, you know, a, an old timey blue collar conservative guy who was mad about his long haired son, actually he was also mentally ill. I mean, flat out. That's what he reveals in the book. And in the show, he kind of pulls back on that. You right, Andy? I mean, yeah, I would think that's definitely true. I guess with the show, there's not a lot of space for that much nuance about each character, right? And also, he just doesn't maybe want to get quite as intense as the book, right? I think it would be as it is. It is a very, very intense and emotional experience. I think if you get into the 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 deep darkness of that stuff and I'm sure he played with it and realized you know it's like you know what I'm hinting at it it's enough and but to get back at, to what this show is it is a combination of spoken word passages which was sort of inaccurately reported in advance to be him quote unquote reading from the book that's what sort of the New York Post leak said he's gonna it almost seemed like it was meant to demean the show the way the, the yeah, Post was reporting it, it it was first seen by people as sort of a weird book tour of sorts he'd sit on stage and be turning pages and be <laughs> like wearing reading glasses or something <laughs> and doing a full on reading which is not the case at all not only that not only is, is there no book in front of him <laughs> uh, thankfully but he's also the spoken word pieces that he's doing are actually either brand new or substantially edited or altered from the book. And I, I think, Andy, your close analysis was the first 
place to really realize that. I think a lot of people in their casual attendance to the show assume that the things are from the book because they're similar to things in the book. Yeah. But no, he, he, he may have intended for all we know to have done things straight from the book. And then as soon as he started to do that, he realized that they weren't going to, weren't going to work exactly as spoken word pieces. Yeah. He had to condense things. So I recorded the whole show just for myself and I, which, and I, I searched for small passages in the book and they weren't there. I, I became, it was very clear that he had rewritten a bunch of it. And at one point in the show, when he does read out of the book, he says he's doing that. He's like, this next part is from the book. Right. And so it's a combination of spoken word stuff and then song performances. He does sing songs. He's not just sitting there talking. Yeah. But uh, it's extremely striking when he gets on stage, he comes out, and I'll just set the scene a little bit. So it's a 970 people, most of them extremely hardcore Bruce fans and some critics. We were at the critics preview, obviously. Yeah. And there's an air of extreme excitement in the air. Uh, There was a a woman behind me. Everyone was trying to be kind of cool about it. And there was a woman behind me and I can do a Jersey accent because I'm from Jersey. Uh, She's like, she's like, I can't even over here. Bruce is going to be on stage right then. Two minutes. And then everyone laughed because, you know, it's like it broke the playing cool. You know, huge excitement. But that he walked out so nonchalantly that there was no staying ovation when he walked on stage. He and I think part of it was the whole show. It's this undercutting of the myth. It's a, it, like I was saying, yeah. it's an attempt to show. So he walks out, and instead of the only time I've ever seen this, well, th- there might have been shows. Can you think of a show where you saw Bruce Springsteen walk out and just start talking instead of starting to sing? Uh, yes, actually, it's an obscure story. <laughs> but I was in Cincinnati when you there was yeah, a, go on, when yeah. there was a ra- when there was a protest against the city because it was there were huge racial problems and there was a protest and there was a sort of boycott of sorts and he walked out on stage and he gave a speech to begin the show fine other than that yeah it is extremely unusual for him to come out and just talk yes it's certainly not what you'd expect so he he comes out and without spoiling it comes out and he goes like dna and that's a, that's the first so he starts this rap about what it takes to you know rock a stadium to become that guy and he lists he lists a bunch of things he starts off with dna you could feel this palpable thing go through the audience and be like what the hell is this you know yeah and they which don't is know what how, he intends you know yeah and then he starts singing and the and the audience they were confused at parts it's this weird energy of like do i clap do right. I sing along? Do I sit silently? The answer, by the way, is sit quietly, yes. be quiet. It's not MetLife Stadium. Seriously, shut up. It's, and it's a keep Broadway your show. phones in your pocket. <laughs> they tell you no phones out, but they don't really enforce it. So there are people around me that were trying to not use their phones, but after like 20 minutes, the desire to just take a picture of him right there is so strong, they couldn't stop themselves. I, oh, and you know, part of the thing is having the experience is a small thing, but have that unmediated experience for once. Don't, you can't look at your phone. You can't just, just sit yeah, there and just, experience it in the moment. Imagine yeah, that. Bruce I, should jump <laughs> off the stage and wrestle them off, off the, that would be a good part of the show. Yeah. I mean, at the Bob Dylan tour, if you take out your phone, they dive on you here. They weren't doing it. I did see one person get chastised. Actually. Okay. Yeah. Right. In fact, more than one. So I, my I was problem, so dead center that they couldn't get near um, me. Yeah. And these seats were too good for him to notice <laughs> this, but I was, but I was saying that, yes. So it, it was very intense and it was very unique and very hard to categorize it so he started out with the song growing up and he played it uh you know everything was just him except for uh patty scalfa came out for a couple songs but otherwise it's just him a guitar and a piano and interestingly he played growing up much in the same way that he auditioned with the song growing up many many years ago in 73 72 
the album came out in 73, but 72, he auditioned for John Hammond, the legendary John Hammond, who had discovered Dylan, would later discover Steve Ray Vaughan, and he, Bruce came up with his manager and an acoustic guitar and performed for John Hammond, and that is what Bruce started as. And, you know, I think we, one of the things we want to do in today's show is get into that, is that a lot of people reviewing the show seem to think that Bruce Springsteen is a stadium rocker doing an acoustic show for basically the first time. That is not accurate. Bruce has an entirely different side of him as an acoustic performer, often a solo acoustic performer. It's He did two whole tours, the Ghost of Tom Joad tour and the Devils and Dust tour as a solo acoustic act. He also... When he got his record deal, he had been, he had broken up his bands, and he talks about this in the book. He had broken up, I, I guess, the Bruce Springsteen band was the band he had broken up, right? Uh, yes. So they caught him in the moment that he was getting his record deal, and it was actually part of it, he said, was conscious. He wanted to be signed as a solo artist. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so he goes into John Hammond, and amazingly, we have that version he played growing up uh, in, a, in a Columbia studio. I think it's probably, this is actually the version the day after he met John Hammond in his office, yeah. then he went into a Columbia studio and, and played it. So this is what it sounded like when Bruce played the song Growing Up uh, for John Hammond and, and the day after in a Columbia studio. Here we go. Well, I stood stone-like at midnight, suspended in my masquerade. I combed my hair till it was just right and commanded the night brigade. I was open to pain and crossed by the rain and I walked So what's cool is that the version he plays in the Broadway show basically sounds just like that. Yeah. And then in the concert versions of growing up over the years with the East Street Band, he would often stop and tell a story. The band would break down and and I want we wanted to talk about that as well. People were surprised by all the storytelling in this show. But again, not a new thing. It's just not something he'd been doing a ton of during these stadium shows with the East Street Band yeah. over the past few years. Yeah, in the post-reunion era of the past 18 years, he sort of stopped that part of his show. If he if he did something, it was sort of rehearsed in the middle of freeze-out or something. He would do a whole rap, but this period of long stories stopped. But in the 70s and the 80s, it was a big part of his show. Huge part of his show. and So Growing Up was sort of the legendary one because basically right before he would break the song down mm. and he did all sorts of stories, some very accurate about his father. And his father didn't know the brand of the guitar. It wasn't like a Fender guitar. It, was, it wasn't a Gibson guitar. It was a goddamn guitar. Turned right. the goddamn guitar. So that all is true. But then it would, you know, there'd be the story where he was a teenage werewolf. Right. And <laughs> they would always know. start... And there I was. And right. Yeah. And so it was always an opportunity. I remember he did one in 2009 in Buffalo, which was one of the last shows with Clarence Clemens when they did yeah. the full greetings album he did. It was about yeah. sort of meeting Clarence and that was a, a beautiful moment. But anyway, he went in in growing up on, in the Broadway show at the same point in the song, he stops it and, and begins telling a, a story about a, you know about his childhood. Yeah, it was a very moving thing, and it was a real flashback. And the best part of the Clarence Clemens book, which I thought was a flawed book, is when Clarence talks about his ability as a storyteller, that they would be in a bar or something, and Bruce, he would just fixate on a person and just tell a whole story about them. It's a part of his persona that that's always been there. It's just been laying dormant for a very long time. And basically what the book proved is that he's a really good writer of prose, and that comes out in this. But it's, it's also, 
it, it picks up again on this sort of level of, of emotional honesty and, and detail. And then he, you know, so then he, he goes from growing up to uh, my hometown. And again, these songs, and as you said in your, in your review, these songs take on a whole new depth and meaning when you hear them in the context of these stories about his life. He, in my hometown, there's a line about, uh, you know, closing down the textile mill across the railroad tracks. He, just to make it like an iota clearer, he call, he says, closing down the rug mill. Right. And then after he plays, he goes, my dad worked at that rug mill, uh-huh. you know? And then he talks about all the different jobs his dad had. And you start to, this three-dimensionality starts to happen. It's not just an yeah. icon, it's, it's a human yeah, being. Yeah, he describes his first house where he lived with his grandparents and the street and the, and the church next door and the tree outside of it. He goes super vivid with his earliest days. What's cool is, you know, my hometown, he moves to the piano. Um, and that's the the joke is typically he might be sliding across a giant stage or whatever, climbing the rafters. In this show, the he shuffles the seven feet between the piano and the microphone in front. And that's all you get. And he might sip a water. That's like the, the full. So all the intensity is in the emotions and in the performance. There's no physicality to it at all, which is actually really interesting. Imagine you're one of the most physical performers of all time and you strip away that aspect of what you do, which again is something he has done before on the right. solo tours. But that energy is still there. It's just it's just concentrated and funneled. <laughs> right. So my father's house is from Nebraska. And of course, that's, you know, when people act like there's no acoustic side to Bruce Springsteen, that's makes it all the more insane because one of his most acclaimed albums is 1982's Nebraska. Yeah. Which. A- and, uh, which is of course, you know, a completely solo acoustic album recorded by himself in a house. I'm not, we're not going to go through all that, Yeah, but he didn't tour it, which is, yeah. And he didn't tour it. Right. Um, supposedly, but we're going to play something from uh, 1990 in a moment because in 1990 was the first time that Bruce actually played full solo acoustic shows. He had, as you pointed out the other day, I think in 86, he did a brief acoustic set at the Bridge School. Right. It was the first Bridge School, but it was with Danny and Nils, and it was sort of a joyous rave-up thing. They played fire and everything, and it was working the highway. It it was closer to like, I don't think MTV Unplugged had debuted in 1986. Definitely not. But it was closer to an MTV Unplugged thing where it had other instruments and it was kind of like a goof. It wasn't, he was kind of joking around a little bit. He seemed uncomfortable with it. It Mm -hmm. it wasn't like, it certainly wasn't a serious full acoustic set. No. Um, You know, but in 1990, um, during this really fallow period or seemingly fallow period, it was was, uh, after tunnel of love but before human touch in lucky town and no one knew what the heck he was doing he settled down with patty he was having kids he reappeared at these christic institute shows they were a benefit for the christic institute which we won't even go into what that is go ahead look it up um but it was a left-wing cause and he was there with bonnie Raitt and jackson brown and he performed these shows just him and an acoustic guitar and a piano and they were absolutely stunning they were so good that reportedly they really thought about releasing them as a live album, you know, to kind of tide fans over between albums. And I, I really think they should have, especially the first night, two of my favorite Bruce concerts of all time. So he played My Father's House at the Christic shows as well. And he gave a really revealing intro that I think was the first hint at the sort of new by the way, sort of psychoanalyzed literally Bruce because he had been to s- in therapy at that point. And suddenly he was able to tell less mythological, I would say, versions of his story. So let, let's hear how he introduced uh, My Father's House at the uh, Christic Institute show in 1990. I used to, um, I had this habit for a long, 
time where I used to get in my car and I would drive back through my old neighborhood and the little town I grew up in. And uh, I would always drive past like the old houses that I used to live in. And I'd do it sometimes late at night if I was, when I used to be up at night. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I got so I would do it really regularly for two, three, four times a week for years. And I eventually got to wondering, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> and so I went to see the psychiatrist. And uh, this is true. <laughs> and, uh, and um, you know, I sat down and I said, you know, Doc, uh, for years I've been getting in my car and I drive back to my town and I, and I pass my houses late at night and... You know, what am I doing? <laughs> and he said, I want you to tell me what you think you're doing. So I said, well, that's what I'm paying you for, you know. So he says, well, what you're doing, he says, is something bad happened. And you're going back, you know, thinking that you can make it right again. Something, something went wrong. And you keep going back to see if you can fix it or somehow make it right. And I sat there and I said, that is what I'm doing. And he said, well, you can. Whew. So, yeah, he was doing this thing already. And it's amazing that show was 27 years ago and it was very much a preview of what would happen later. So you're listening to Rolling Stone Music now. We're talking about Springsteen on Broadway and also kind of talking about the history of Bruce Springsteen as an acoustic performer, which seems to be a weird mystery for most people. And we'll be right back with a lot more. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. Earlier, we played some audio from a, a 1990 acoustic show by Springsteen at uh, in in uh, California for the the Christic Institute. It was sort of a left wing benefit with Bonnie Raitt and Jackson Brown. And, and I should mention that was one of the most treasured bootlegs for Bruce fans for 27 years, basically, uh, until finally recently he released it as part of the uh, his sort of live bootleg series. So you can officially buy that in better sound quality than it's ever been before. That's where we played it from. And it's uh, at live.brucespringsteen.net, I believe. And you can buy that in a million other Bruce shows. And it's one of the core things, honestly, that a veteran artist has done in, in recent years, uh, sharing this kind of awesome archive. So Bruce then played one of his most obscure songs, I would argue, which is a song called The Wish. And The Wish is a song about his mom. It was astounding. They were dancing after Daddy Dance in the Dark when she was 90-something. It, it, it does help explain these sort of Springsteen-continued fitness because, it, you know, it's obviously in the genes. But So he actually debuted The Wish at one of these 1990 acoustic shows I keep talking about, um, which, 
holds to my thesis that that was the initial template for these shows. Andy points out that he then, of course, played two entire acoustic tours, including the Ghosted Tom Joad tour. Uh, so those those would also be templates, obviously. But th- this was the initial start of this side of Bruce, at least as a live performer. Uh, it's also, honestly, these shows in 1990 were the closest thing to seeing what a Nebraska tour would have been. But So let's hear what how Bruce introduced The Wish back in 1990 although it's 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 a lot lighter hearted <laughs> than than what he what he had to say on Broadway but let's hear what he had to say back then I I, I had this I wrote this song quite a while ago and and uh, I never really recorded it I put it out as a song about my mother and uh it's a funny thing because uh I said you yeah, had this song and I said, gee, rock musician, rock and roll people. Ain't nobody sings about their mother out there. So I said, well, gee, why is that? It's against all like that macho posturing that you have to do and stuff, you know? So I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So, you know, so this was a real problem, so I wanted to figure it out. So I went to see the psychiatrist. It's a true story. I told him what the problem was. I had this song about my mother, and I haven't sung it because of all the macho posturing that I have to do. All right. So he said he understood. He said, "Well, see, you have to you have to see. You see, all men are afraid of their mothers. They say boy's best friend is his mother, but really, all men are afraid of their mothers." I had to pay for this. You're gonna get this for free right now. So, so you know, I said, "Well, all men are afraid of their mothers." Yeah, that's why, that's why, like, when, when, when the man and the woman, when they get arguing, like, the woman's always going, do I look like your mother? I'm not your mother. Am I supposed to be your mother? That was Bruce Springsteen talking about the song The Wish. It was more like stand-up comedy Bruce from 1990. In Springsteen on Broadway, the subject of today's show, he's a hell of a lot more somber. There are light moments, but it's it's interesting to see the other mode he could have gone to. Yeah, there are a few light moments in the show. Yeah, he did not see this as a sort of a fun, loose evening with Bruce Springsteen. It's an intense look into <laughs> the The past. stand-up comedy Bruce is going to be next year. We can't even wait for that one. Yeah. <laughs> But again, you know, tons of storytelling on stage, tons of tons of history of doing this. Let's hear the actual song The Wish a little bit and hear you know why it was so emotionally affecting, you know. It ain't no phone call on Sunday. Flowers are a Mother's Day card. It ain't no house on the hill. With a garden and a nice little yard I got my hot rod down on Bond Street I'm older but you'll know me in a glance We'll find us a rock and roll bar Baby, we'll go out and he left out the baby will go out and dance in the, in the Broadway show. It really mm-hmm. bugged me. I really liked the baby will go. Maybe he felt it was too Oedipal. Yeah. <laughs> I kept waiting for him to do the baby because there, there, there is that slight tinge of like, 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's I, some weirdness there. It made okay. him uncomfortable. So yeah. you, I, I, we we caught you, Bruce. We yeah. saw what you're doing there. Don't think we didn't notice that. <laughs> Again, it's it, as he says. It's not something uh, you expect from a rock star. There's another version of a stage rap for that, and I can't remember where it's from. I thought it was from Christie, where he talks about how like Tupac had a song about his mom. Like it's okay in hip hop, but it never was okay in rock. There are not a lot of mom songs in rock and roll. Yeah, and of the whole show, that's basically like the one really obscure song. That's right. And that's, I think, again, going back to to Andy Green's review of Springsteen on Broadway, while he has done acoustic shows in the past, many of them, the difference is, and I actually did the interview with him for uh, the Devils and Dust album, that was sort of a sequel to Nebraska. It was another acoustic album, although much more sort of, um, with way more arrangements. But he did end up touring solo acoustically for it. And he made a point of saying to me that he, you know, it's something he wanted to be printed in Rolling Stone. and be like, basically, like, tell everybody I will not be doing unplugged versions of my hits. I'm not playing Thunder Road. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did eventually. <laughs> yeah, of course. He's like, all right, here's Thunder Road. But, yeah. you know, but mostly he did not play Thunder Road. He mostly yeah. played, especially I went to the opening night of that tour in Detroit. Mm-hmm. He really was digging deep. I remember writing at the time, it was all songs that for dumbasses at a stadium show would be like their bathroom break song. Yeah. It was an entire show but of those songs. Then he foolishly decided to take that tour and play in these half house arenas. That which, was a mistake. And, which, and, and I think, and now notice he's back in the, mo- he's doing acoustic show in the most intimate venue you could possibly imagine. But anyway, the difference, as we were saying, the difference yeah. between his previous acoustic shows and this Broadway show, in addition to a lot of it being spoken, is that most of the songs are super well-known. I actually was pretty baffled. I'll just call it out. The The New York Times said it didn't have a lot of his well-known songs. I was like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about there. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, he plays Dancing in the Dark and Born to Run and Thunder Road and The Promised Land and Born in the USA. Those are his <laughs> most famous songs. I think what it means is like, he didn't play Glory Days? No, I think, the, I think the the writer didn't recognize some of the songs, so they thought they weren't famous. I mean, look, he didn't play Hungry Heart. I don't know. He well, didn't come play, on. He, he, didn't, played he didn't play I'm on Fire, but he didn't play like the entire Boring Say album, but otherwise I have no idea what the dude's talking about. Yeah. But it does end up being acoustic versions of a lot of his well-known songs, and so that creates a, a different vibe, for sure. Yeah, it's a different vibe, and for someone like me who's heard these songs in concert many, many, many times, they sounded fresh again. When he t- when he's talking about leaving Freehold and then he plays Thunder Road, it feels like a very different take on Thunder Road. It's, it is him leaving. This is his adventure. You can visualize him in this flatbed truck that he's talking about. Well, yeah, let, let's dig into that. So, in you know, he plays Thunder Road. Obviously, the cli- I don't need to tell you, listener, the climactic line of Thunder Road is it's, it's a town full of losers. I'm pulling out of here to win. And, of course, in the story of the song, he's with his girlfriend. In reality, he was not with his girlfriend when he left Freehold. He was lying on a mattress, as he recounts in his book and as he recounts on stage. He was lying on a mattress on the back of a flatbed truck upon which he had, you know, put all of his possessions because he and his friends had <laughs> had taken over his childhood house when his parents moved to California. So they basically turned his childhood house into, into like, like a flop house. Into like a hippie flop house, <laughs> which was not popular with the town of Freehold. But then he, he left and then when he tells you this story and then goes into Thunder Road, suddenly you see, okay, here's the real life thing and here's the song version and how they connect and don't connect and it's just totally different. Sounds totally different. Right. And you sense how he had nothing to lose really, that his family was gone. He said that he didn't see his sister. His parents were on their side of the country. 
he was just completely alone and by himself and he was, but he felt so free and then a rare funny moment is when he's saying that so many of the songs he's born to run a town full of losers he has to leave the town he has to leave he has to leave he has to leave he has to leave and then he says and I live 10 minutes away from, from his now. hometown yeah. from now yeah yeah so right it, which is true it's literally a 10 minute drive yeah, yeah. Um, so and that goes back by the way to uh, the way you started re- your review and something he says very early on which is he never did a day's worth of quote hard work in his life mm-hmm. that that's all he's saying about but he never had an honest job in his life yeah uh, but and, and then he's a he in some sense that everyone in Asbury Park is a little bit of a fraud and he was no exception yeah but then then the weird thing is that this play as he said in an interview is sort of his first job he has to be at the same place for months on end and start at the same time and do the same thing it's like a job now right so I'd imagine for a touring musician it's also an incredibly pleasant change that you just know where you have to be you don't have to be in the hotel you just you know and and I wonder also it's a whole separate discussion I wonder how many other people are going to be trying this now yeah it got such great reviews it's making so much money and there's no production expenses really besides paying for the theater or something I mean well it is really funny and I'm sure you two would be the first to admit this. It's really funny to compare this to Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark <laughs> yeah. because it's it's maximalist versus minimalist. And, yeah. and comparatively, it's a hilarious difference in sort of effort in some ways. Yeah, I mean, not, not that he didn't work hard on this, but it, you know, there's, you know, they were trying to basically reinvent the Broadway musical. <laughs> they were, they were trying to make like, and not just them, uh, Julie Taymor as well, but they were trying all these technical innovations yeah, and, and Spider-Man's falling from the ceiling. Spending tens of millions of dollars to break the laws of physics almost <laughs> and watch <laughs> men right. fly to the ground and right. almost die. <laughs> they were, they were trying to give people actual Spider-Man powers, <laughs> yes. you know, and, and make re- real green goblins and all this yeah. stuff. And it was, uh, despite their best efforts, obviously, a massive failure a, a cataclysm fiasco. it was a and fiasco with one percent of the effort <laughs> well not the effort but the sort or, of or the complications yeah, yeah the, with a youtube thing that was years and years and years and years of work so, so you have two options you can like you know you can spend five years trying to basically create a real spider-man <laughs> and write an entire show from scratch and hire all these people or you can just walk out stage and be bruce springsteen and obviously that, that works better so what you've mentioned and other people mentioned is in springsteen on broadway around halfway through we got to Thunder Road, and then the next is the Promised Land, which he introduces with the amazing yeah. story of traveling cross country to play New Year's Eve in California. But after that, all of a sudden, it th- switches. Yeah. It switches. He, the last story you hear that's going in this chronological order is is on New Year's Eve, nineteen sixty nine, <laughs> which is he's not a sixties art. You know, it's really early, and as soon as the seventies start, the whole structure changes. The life story stops. Yeah. And he, he jumps to Born in the USA. And it's a little bit, you're like, oh, okay, well, now we're in the 80s. And he performed it in a version we've heard before with, with a lot of like very aggressive um, slide guitar and a, a, a quite a mournful air. Let's hear it. He end up like a dog that's been beat too much. Do you spend half your life just to cover enough? I was born in the USA. I was born in the USA. And I think he, he explains the most clearly ever exactly what's going on in that song because he, he cannot say enough times over the years that it's a protest song. Interestingly, some of the reviewers who are somewhat new to Bruce were like, oh, you know, he for the first time I really felt it was a protest song, <laughs> which just shows he really does need to make this point over and over again. But one of the things, he, he also calls it a GI blues, which is kind of a funny Elvis reference. But... 
what I thought was interesting was he finally explains it. It's like he's sick of people misunderstanding this to the point where he now just had to explain it almost to death, but not quite, where he he actually says, look, the verses, born down in a dead man's town, first kick I took when I hit the ground. I love that people think that's a happy <laughs> thing. Uh, you know, but, but the verses are, you know, the problem. It's what's happening to him. And the chorus is just him stating, the narrator, stating the only thing fact that can't be taken away from them mm-hmm. they were born in the usa it's like what they have left but i mean <laughs> he's never actually kind of had to go as far as to be like here's what the chorus means yeah. god damn it you yeah know? i think that in all the hundreds of times he's had to explain that song that he's never phrased it like that he was assuming that people would get that but obviously they haven't so he said it and it's like okay thank you that now now you can really throw that at anyone who still under- misunderstands that song and then he plays 10th Avenue Freeze Out and talks about the E Street Band and uh, most movingly Clarence and, and about his friendship his friendship with Clarence Clemens and everything that Clarence meant to him. Uh, and then there's a segment where he and Patty Scalfa sing Tougher Than the Rest and, and Brilliant Disguise from Tunnel of Love. And then we're kind of going quick. He, he, he kind of, he plays The Rising. Um, he plays Long Walk Home, which we should talk about for a minute. Long Walk Home is a song for Magic, right? Yeah, yeah. It's Magic. It was debuted on the Secret Sessions tour. He wrote it in 06 at the height of sort of the anti-war movement against the Iraq War. And so, you know, Long Walk Home is a metaphoric song. It's sort of, it allows a sort of broken relationship between a man and a woman to stand in for kind of the broken relationship in his mind between America and his citizens. And there's a couple lines that clearly resonate pretty intensely right now. The flag flying over the courthouse that says certain things are set in stone, who we are, what we'll do, what we won't. Which you has know. been quoted recently by Rand Paul as a favorite of his. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> Bruce does talk a little bit about the sort of political era in this in this show and uh, you know lightly touches on lightly does not say the word trump i mean that said his views on trump are quite clear he said to me before the election that trump is a moron uh, he, he said that in like last October and he actually he got on the moron train early I think he was the, the first yeah he to, was he beat before Tillerson, Tillerson. before <laughs> Tillerson he called him a moron which I, I see people have pointed out you know said the republic is under siege by a moron was his quote um, so it's not like his views on trump are a secret but I think he he said he doesn't feel the need to write a Trump bashing song and rather than bashing Trump he he kind of hit what I would call an Obama-esque extremely Obama-esque note of optimism he pointed to the Martin Luther King quote that Obama is also extremely fond of you know that that the universe that the, the arc, arc of the, universe of the bends, moral universe is long but bends towards justice yeah. which has also been quoted a lot recently by Bono <laughs> yeah cool you know <laughs> Bono Rand Paul everyone's taking Bruce's thing but and he basically is like I think that's true. Then he goes, I hope that's true. And then he's like basically saying what, you know, the most optimistic twist, which is that maybe this is just a bad chapter. Yeah. You know, and he talks about the torchlit parades of the neo-Nazis recently, but it's all very quick. It's like 40 seconds of a two hour show. He's talking about this stuff. But I think it's more like this song stand as, you know, in contrast to the era. And it's the show could be seen in a whole as sort of a pep talk that everyone needs in this era, yeah. you know, and and I will say in the rising in the acoustic version for me, it's like I mean, my God, the song of the rising is about a firefighter going up 
the stairs to, a certain of, uh, to die in the World Trade Center. That is what the song is about. Yeah. And the bridge, you know, uh, you know, a, a dream of life comes through me. It's like the moment of his death and yeah. he's picturing his children as he dies. I mean, that for me, hearing that acoustically, it's like, Jesus, the balls to write, even write that song and to make it great. You really feel because I mean, that that is really in some daring and intense territory. The dude is dying during the song and yeah. they, to hear that bear and strip to its lyrics that was one of the most powerful moments although it's it's weird because there's a part when you know s- someone is supposed to be going a dream of life and background vocals yeah. and he's doing it himself and you right. sort of want nose off from them so anyway so springsteen on broadway was uh, a ppretty intense experience and you know it's it sold out but if you somehow get your hands on tickets i would advise going and i imagine there's going to be some kind of version available for sale or, or a tv special or something i can't imagine this stays strictly on broadway Broadway. But I've been here with Andy Green talking about it, and uh, I'm Brian Hyatt. This has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week uh, here on Sirius XM's Volume Channel 106. And in the meantime, you can download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and you can also subscribe to us as a podcast, and I hope you do. And you can try to leave us a nice review on iTunes. And I, I did want to say to all reviewers who have complained that we don't play full songs on this show, I wish we could, but we can't. We can't on Sirius. We can't as a podcast. It's a licensing issue. Uh, we just, unless you have a few million dollars for us to license out the songs, in which case we'd be glad to do it. We just can't. So, uh, you know, keep in mind that we would love to do that for you, but we just are unable to. But in any case, we'll be back next week with more Rolling Stone music now and no full songs, but as many clips as we can. And we'll see you next week and have a great weekend. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.